Thank you for listening to the iCritical Care Podcasts with your new host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC. For copyright and disclosure information, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, we'll be speaking with Clifford S. Deutschman, MD, FCCM, and Craig M. Coopersmith, MD, FCCM, who each serve as lead authors in two important critical care medicine papers related to research in the intensive care unit. Dr. Coopersmith's paper, A Comparison of Critical Care Research Funding and the Financial Burden of Critical Illness in the United States, brings attention to the comparatively low percentage of federal research dollars dedicated to critical care research. Months earlier, Dr. Deutschman, in collaboration with members of the Critical Care Society's Collaborative, published a critical care research agenda, and this highlighted key issues as well as recommendations. Dr. Deutschman is the current president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is a professor of anesthesia and critical care at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Cooper Smith is the current secretary of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is the associate director of the Emory Center for critical care at Emory University School of Medicine. So let's start with Dr. Cooper Smith. Dr. Cooper Smith, what is the current situation or environment of critical care research in the United States? That's why we undertook this study in the first place, because we actually had no idea how to answer the question. A lot of people had anecdotal beliefs that uh, research funding was relatively low for critical care, but there was no way to quantify this. And so we put together a blue-ribbon, multidisciplinary, multi-professional panel um, within SCCM to tackle the question. And if I want to bring it down to one bullet point, it's that uh, funding for critical care research is significantly lower than the financial burden that critical care um, causes on uh, the United States. It seems today that hospitals are really nothing more than large, expanding, intensive care units. And it would seem rational that with an increase in the provision of critical care services in our hospitals, we would see proportional increases in critical care research funding. Well, one of the two aspects of the paper that we did was actually to find out how much critical care actually costs for the United States. And we did that by two different ways, one looking within hospitals and one looking across the entire healthcare system. Uh, specifically looking within hospitals, critical care makes up somewhere between 17 and 39 percent of all costs within hospitals. And the reason that range is fairly broad is because it's unclear how one defines critical care. If one includes coronary care units and intermediate care units, then it becomes basically 40% of all hospital costs are related to critical care. And when one looks uh, nationwide at uh, total health care dollars, it's somewhere between $121 and $263 billion are spent on critical care. And again, that range to some degree has to do with um, how one defines critical care, whether one includes coronary care units and whether one includes intermediate care units, which assuredly both have people who are critically ill in them. You and your co-authors determined the total amount of dollars spent on critical care research, and this seems to be a rather complicated endeavor. Could you explain how you accomplished this? Right. So this is really a heroic effort on the part of um, a number of uh, leaders within SCCM, including um, President Deutschman. And what we did ultimately is we looked at in one year of the NIH budget, there were um, 19,257 grants. We came up with a list of over 100 keywords that we thought would basically cover almost everything related to critical care. And we came up with these keywords as expertises from the journal Critical Care Medicine. We looked at over 3,000 words having to do with expertise in critical care. And that narrowed down what we used for our search. 
And we searched these keywords against all 19,000 grants, found out that about 8,000 or so of the grants actually included a keyword that could potentially be related to critical care. Once we got these grants, and it was over 8,000 of them, we looked at every single one of them, the title and the abstract, which was available from the NIH. And reading them, we made a simple answer that a grant was definitely related to critical care, possibly related to critical care, or not related to critical care. And we had two individual reviewers independently review these over 8,000 grants. And what we found was that there was concordance between the reviewers well over 90% of the time, meaning that even though we were in different cities at different times, most of us felt that we both could recognize critical care. When there was discordance, somebody said yes and somebody said possibly, for instance, or somebody said possibly and somebody said no, we went to a third reviewer who analyzed um, these grants as well. And then ultimately we ended up with a spectrum, uh, depending upon how we define related to critical care. The most liberal uh, spectrum we had is that one out of three reviewers only had to say that it was possibly related, two might say that it was not. And the most conservative is that both the reviewers had to say it was definitely related to critical care. And using these two spectrums, we found that somewhere between 1.7 and 6.3% of all grants funded by the NIH relate to critical care in some way. Only 1.7 to 6.3% of all research dollars go into critical care, yet over $250 billion or a quarter of a trillion dollars is spent providing critical care services each year in the United States. Is it a fair statement to say that proportionally, critical care research is less than half of where it should be? Yes, and it's uh, it's somewhat frustrating. And again, I'd probably say the 6% is almost assuredly an overestimation because the only way that 6% of grants are related to critical care is if it, every single grant that was rated possibly by one of three reviewers, which was actually the majority of them, when the other one or two said that it was not, was related. So we're probably talking smaller numbers even than that. So the disparateness is, if anything, greater than the paper probably makes it seem to be. When we compare the percentage of healthcare dollars spent on providing critical care services to the percentage of research dollars spent on researching critical care, we could determine that proportionally critical care research is underfunded by approximately 50%. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. And we went into this study with an anecdotal belief that we might find that critical care research was underfunded. But we also came in open-minded. We knew that we would come up with one of three results that critical care research was underfunded, which is what it appears to be, that it was appropriately funded, commensurate with the financial burden, or that it was actually overfunded. And we now have an idea that it's underfunded, and this will dovetail into what Dr. Deutschman is going to talk about in terms of, A, it's underfunded, but B, what are we funding it on, and what should we be funding it on in the future with the understanding that the NIH budget at best is going to stay flat and at worst is going to have significant cuts when we already have a relatively very small piece of the pie. Dr. Cooper-Smith, what are some of your insights or explanations as to why critical care funding is so inadequately funded? Well, there's a number of possibilities that this could be. This could be simply that there is no particular place within the NIH that funds critical care. So, for instance, if one has a cancer grant, it will get funded through the National Cancer Institute. There's no National Critical Care Institute. And so what we found is when we looked to see who funds critical care, it was most of the funding came from eight different NIH institutes, but none of them was at their dominant funding mechanism. 
So it could be that it's not coming from one place. It could be that it's not a priority within the NIH. It could be that there are less applications within critical care. Um, it could be a combination of these reasons. Uh, the study is unable to come up with an answer for any of these equally plausible and complementary ex um, explanations. So if I may restate, since the practice of and treatment of critical care problems typically involves multiple organ systems, is integrative and, and uh, really is a multidisciplinary uh, practice, uh, this makes it more uh, difficult in the paradigm of the NIH, which is really predicated on a particular organ system or a particular disease, to fit into a particular cookie-cutter uh, paradigm of uh, federal funding. I agree a thousand percent. I mean, it makes it very uh, difficult. And I'm looking over at Dr. Deutschman right now, who does research that involves the liver, that involves the lungs, that involves the blood. Well, who funds that? The lung people, the liver people, the blood people. You could say the same thing for my research, which involves the intestine, and the lungs, and the blood. Who funds that? Um, although both of us have been fortunate to and been blessed and been funded by the NIH for a long period of time, it's very difficult when you get a reviewer who is not a critical care reviewer per se, but is a lung reviewer. Well, they might not understand the liver or they might not understand the implications outside of their host organ. And most of the NIH is set up that way. And it's, it's fairly difficult to get experts in the field to look at the integrative uh, method that you speak of, which also speaks to another possibility that there are no study sections within NIH that specifically review critical care grant. Dr. Deutschman, uh, you're the lead author on a paper that uh, represents a large collaboration of thought leaders in critical care as well as leaders in various professional societies. And uh, this paper, as I understand, was uh, published in multiple journals uh, simultaneously, and you've identified gaps in our current knowledge and established an agenda, a research agenda, for future funding of research in the area of critical care. There are a lot of, I think, excellent ideas and important concepts in this paper. The one that's not written down is reflected in the, the authorship and reflected in the fact that this was published simultaneously in the official journals of four different societies. That's a first. These are journals that, uh, by and large, had never agreed to simultaneous publication with anybody. And I think it, it reflects how important a topic the community believes critical care research is, and it reflects the fact that um, a group of people with diverse interests, diverse training, diverse uh, affiliations came together to generate an agenda uh, because they thought it was so essential and so important. Again, that's unusual. The, the critical care community represents a number of different physicians groups. It represents nurses and pharmacists and all kinds of other individuals. And we're all united in our, uh, our, our desire to improve the care of our patients, and we're un united in our uh, desire to expand the scope of research so that we can serve our patients better. And that supersedes all kinds of, of, of trivialities of affiliation and, uh, and nomenclature. The patients comes first. Understanding and better treating the illnesses uh, that make them critically ill, that, that bring them to our ICUs, um, is, is of paramount importance, and it supersedes a lot of other 
political issues. Well, I'd like to congratulate you on what I think is a really exciting, insightful, and creative collection of research topics and an agenda that really will define how the next generation of, of intensivists will practice critical care. But, you know, your research agenda goes beyond that. It's integrative in that it involves all the various providers in critical care, uh, from uh, physicians to nurses, to respiratory therapists, um, uh, uh, pharmacists, as well as healthcare delivery systems. It's, it's a tremendous document in that regard. And the implications of funding this research, uh, I, I really, I think, will change the horizon of critical care medicine as well as how healthcare is going to be provided. Thanks for the kind words. Um, the paper is the work of a, uh, an extraordinary group of, of 25 individuals, uh, one of whom was, was Craig Coopersmith. I think that the discussion that you and Craig just had very much highlights why this paper was important. And in fact, that was our thinking uh, when we originally uh, proposed these two ideas at the same time seven or eight years ago. Critical care is a new specialty. You know, the SCCM has just celebrated its 41st anniversary. And it is a specialty that differs from virtually everything else in, uh, in the field of medicine. It cuts across traditional medical specialties. And when we put together the task force that looked uh, at, at the uh, research agenda, we had to take that into account. So it involves anesthesiologists and internists and pulmonologists and pediatricians and surgeons and, and a host of other people. But beyond that, it involves other medical practitioners, other professionals, in, in a way that, that, um, that points out how essential they are to providing appropriate care. Uh, nurses, pharmacists, dietitians, um, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, we could go on and on. And again, that's also something we had to take in, into account in putting together a critical care research agenda. I think the bottom line on this, though, is that it's a specialty that requires integration of different practitioners, and it also requires integrated physiology or integrated pharmacology, if you will. Uh, the point that Craig was making about the fact and the point that you yourself made, the fact that you can't really talk about an individual organ system when you're talking about a critically ill individual uh, is, is absolutely key. Uh, the, the truth is that we, we do indeed, in our laboratory, study multiple organ systems. Uh, you know, Craig missed the heart and the brain, but we do that too. But the bottom line is that the traditional setup for medical research, and it's not just set up within the NIH, it's within funding and, and, and all aspects of medical research, has been focused either on disease entities like cancer or populations like um, the elderly or children or organ systems like heart, lung, and blood or um, the liver um, or the brain. And that simply doesn't work in critical illness. It's a disease of the entire system. It's a disease of the entire organism. And there's that's got to be taken into account uh, when you both deliver care and when you uh, when you put together uh, research agendas. That's something we sought to do in this. And, and I think that it's uh, it, it, it has really major implications for funding, really major implications for the direction of research. You made the point yourself that it's seeming more and more like our hospitals are turning into one great big intensive care unit. Uh, I, it's, it really has gotten to the point where you almost have to be critically ill to get admitted to the hospital. Um, with those kind of patients, with those kind of disorders, it's imperative that we change the way we think 
away from the traditional siloed approach and towards a more integrated approach. And that's one of the key points we make in this paper. We've been talking about the negative effects of siloing and research funding. Uh, within critical care medicine, it seems we still have some arbitrary divisions based on specialties or disease processes. And it would seem that successful research into various of these topics uh, on your research agenda would also have tremendous positive impact in the treatment of other types of illnesses, not necessarily treated uh, in the intensive care unit, but perhaps in the acute care setting of the hospital or even in the outpatient setting, as well as the chronic disease management. For instance, there are uh, items on your research agenda that talk about the use of biomarkers and detection of sepsis, uh, variations of antimicrobial therapy, uh, markers for acute kidney injury, uh, methods of communication for high, uh, highly reliable organizations and transitions of care. And those items just aren't relative to critical care. They have a halo effect into these other areas that would also seem to benefit uh, from fulfilling your research and, and from funding this research agenda. I think that's that's a, a, a correct statement. Um, it is important to to note, I mean, you, you've spoken a bit about biomarkers, and that's one aspect of the things that we talked about. But one of, uh, one of the things I've always said is biomarkers are simply biology we don't understand yet. Uh, when we understand them, they won't be biomarkers anymore. They'll be something that we have to modify to, uh, to modify a disease process, not something we simply watch to tell us the direction the disease process is going in. And that feeds into the whole notion that critical care research, like critical care practice, has to be integrated. It's essential if we are going to use something as a biomarker that somebody be looking at what it is specifically that protein, that lipid, that whatever does and why it, it becomes a marker of the illness. On the other hand, um, when looking at biomarkers, you know, the point uh, of, of following a disease process is to be able to prognosticate, to be able to make predictions, uh, to be able to appropriately direct resources, to get ahead of the curve. In a very real sense, what biomarkers provide us with is is the opportunity for preventive care. Um, doing that properly requires clinical intervention. It requires uh, translation. It requires outcomes. It requires research into how we design our healthcare systems. All these things feed together. And just as critical care practice is an integrated practice that involves all kinds of different healthcare professionals, Critical care research also is integrated and requires input from a variety of, of, of different individuals, all of whom we tried very hard to, uh, to uh, represent in this research agenda. If I could play devil's advocate for a moment, uh, you know, is this funding of this research agenda really a priority for the membership of the entire society? For example, if I'm an intensivist working in an eight-bed community hospital or a nurse or respiratory therapist, how does the federal funding of this research agenda really impact uh, my daily practice? Well, I, I, again, I think there are a, a bunch of different ways. You've hit on one by itself, which is you, yourself, you hit on the, the issue of biomarkers. You know, how do we know what direction the disease is going in? How do we know what direction the syndrome is taking? How do we know if it's present? Um, those are things that will directly affect your practice. Uh, interventions, new interventions come out of the laboratory. And in the case of critically ill patients, need to translate very quickly to the bedside. Um, times are wasting, and, uh, and, and patients are, are, are dying. 
So that is, that's a, a key ingredient of it as well. But I, I think the other big part of the picture is that this isn't, as you said before, something that's just about critical care. It's about our entire healthcare system. It's about the direction that we need to go in. Uh, it's about how we're going to deal with very real problems on virtually every level. The problem that we have with with critical care research, at least in part, is to some extent our own fault. We've we've allowed ourselves to remain more or less invisible. Um, we haven't claimed the limelight, uh, despite the fact that uh, that we touch on on virtually everybody's life at some point or another, and on virtually all branches of medicine. Uh, I think it's it's incumbent on us to uh, to make it clear to everybody that progress in treating critically ill patients is something that is essential to each individual and each individual therefore should have a stake in in helping uh, that progress uh, us progress forward so as the leadership of the society of critical care medicine what is your agenda of action or your prescription to acquire greater federal funding to fund this type of uh, sorely needed critical care research uh, there's the rub. There are a number of different things. Uh, the, you know, the the obvious answer is to go to the NIH and make the case that we've made in these papers. Um, I think it's it's not a difficult case to make, and we've done that once. A group of individuals, uh, actually the steering committee, the, the authors on this paper of the uh, research uh, agenda, went to the NIH, met with a number of key program leaders and uh, institute directors or program directors, and uh, and, and pitched the case. And I think we found a very sympathetic audience. I think that, that the staff, if you will, at the NIH is, is looking to be progressive and is looking to get a step ahead and is looking, if, if you will, for the next big thing. You know, I've done the human genome, what comes next? Uh, and this is certainly something that resonated with them. But that's a very small part of the issue because NIH dollars are going to stay flat, um, I suspect, within the, uh, within the near future. And, even at its most extreme, the, the NIH budget doesn't have the capability of dealing with, with the, uh, the magnitude of this problem. Again, it comes back to making the case, um, and we will try and do that. We could spend a tremendous amount of money and try to lobby Congress. Um, we found in most things that that's not an effective strategy. What's more effective is to build relationships, find individuals. Um, there are people out there. Uh, for whom the care providing care in the in, in the intensive care unit is entirely personal, we need to locate those people. We need to help them uh, become spokesmen for what we're trying to do. We need to educate them, and we need to uh, solicit their help. There are a lot of people out there who, if they stop and think about it, if they stop and look at their lives, look at the lives of the people they care about, will discover that that critical care, that critical illness, is intensely important to them. And the treatment and the better understanding of, of critical illness and critically ill patients uh, is something that is directly relevant. The biggest thing we need to do is make it personal. Dr. Coopersmith, you commented earlier that it seems that critical care research is not a priority. Has there been a deliberate reprioritization of, of priorities, perhaps on the, the federal funding level, to areas such as, say, preventative care or childhood diseases uh, or maternal fetal medicine, and perhaps um, this is a, a de-emphasis on critical care, what some others might determine as uh, end-of-life care? 
I don't know so much that there's been a deprioritization as there has been a continued prioritization in which critical care is not a high-level priority. Um, I think it goes back to what Cliff is saying. If you look at the most common causes of death in the United States, everybody knows somebody who has heart disease. Everybody knows somebody who has cancer. Assuming the data that's been published in critical care medicine is accurate, over 210,000 people die of sepsis a year, which would make it the third most common cause of death in the United States. If you ask somebody walking down the street, who do you know who has sepsis, who's had sepsis, nobody has ever heard of the disease. And it's the exact opposite of personal. And because it's the opposite of personal, it's a low priority. This is not to pick on other diseases that have done this very well. But if you were to take breast cancer or Parkinson's disease, everybody knows the Komen race for the cure. Everybody knows the Michael J. Fox Foundation. They've effectively made it personal, and we have not. And so we have been a low priority on the list. People go to the ICU, quote-unquote, to die, not understanding that people come to the ICU to live. And we have remarkable success. And if we had additional resources, certainly, we can have even more success. If one looks at the field of critical care 20, 30 years ago to what it looks like now, it's remarkably different because of success of research with a relatively small amount of the pie. I'm fond of telling people when they ask why I went to critical care, and I am trained as a surgeon, I just recertified in general surgery and... My test that I took was more or less the same as the test 10 years ago, was probably fairly similar to the test 10 years before that. It's not saying that there haven't been advances in surgery, there have, but my practice in the ICU, when I look at what I do for somebody and what I did during my fellowship, other than the fact that there are ventilators and there is such a thing called antibiotics and dialysis, everything that I did 15 years ago is different today and is different today because of the research that we've done. If we can get that message out there, imagine what we could do if we were a priority. So we have to make this intensely personal, not only as physicians, but also as members of the public. If I may for a second, Jeff, that this plays in very nicely with something that's actually in the news right now. Uh, sometime, I, I guess it was sometime last week, um, the campaign to quote-unquote choose wisely uh, went public. This was essentially saying to people – Look at what your health care choices are. Um, get yourself involved. And beyond that, uh, saying to practitioners, uh, there are things that we're doing that don't make sense. And there are things that we're doing that we're not doing well enough and we need to start to concentrate on them. By the same token, I, I would say that consumers of health care need to choose wisely in their selection of institutions uh, when they do have things done. The common denominator in many of the disorders we've talked about, cancer, heart disease, neurological disease, is that all these patients at some point can end up in an intensive care unit. And yet people will choose their neurologist, their cancer surgeon, their, their cancer chemotherapy, uh, their, their cardiologist very carefully, but won't look at the facilities, the resources available if they should become critically ill. I would suggest that um, that needs to become a priority as well. This needs to be one of the things that people look at when they decide to choose wisely. 
Well, it seems in surgery, not much has really changed in, in how surgery is practiced. We may do it with uh, different instruments uh, or different timing, issues of patient selection, but it really seems that large impacts in the morbidity and mortality of surgery have been impacted by uh, perioperative medicine. It's, it's an important point. Uh, you know, I will come at it slightly differently. You know, my training was in anesthesiology, and while I consider myself an intensivist first and an anesthesiologist second, um, I can look at both fields. The drugs have changed, the doses have changed, some of the techniques have changed. But what we were doing when I was a resident in 1985 is very similar to what we do in the operating room today. What we were doing in the intensive care unit compared to uh, when I was a fellow back then is light years different. And you're right, it's made a huge difference in the outcome of patients, uh, far more certainly than uh, than having one more smelly gas that makes you fall asleep. Gentlemen, you've dedicated your lives to research, and what would you say to critical care medicine professionals and practitioners in intensive care units and hospitals, small and large, uh, around this country uh, regarding the relevance of critical care research on their daily practices? Well, I guess I'm going to go on the same theme that we've been talking about, because for me, doing research is personal. Not personal in the sense of a family member, although it could be one day, but personal in the sense that some weeks I am what people think of as a doctor, I'm, I'm functioning as an intensivist, and some weeks I'm in the laboratory, and I go back and forth, and when I'm in the ICU, I'm frustrated at times, because despite everything all our knowledge, all our skills, all our teamwork, there are still some patients, a lot of patients, who are beyond our skills to save right now. And that drives me when I go back to the lab. And when I go to the lab, I can think of somebody in bed 14. And I can think of that person. I said, if we could understand, maybe the next person in that bed won't have the same outcome. And so I guess the insight for me is the same as I would hope for anybody this really is personal. We do a fantastic job at the bedside right now. As Cliff just said, it's light years between now and 1985, although I will point out that I was not in training in 1985. <laughs> but it's light years different from when I was a fellow. Care is so much better, but care clearly still could be better. If we understood things better, there will be different outcomes for our patients. And so it's personal for me because one day it's going to be me in that bed. It's going to be my family in that bed. And for the patients who I have in that bed who we can't help right now, research will change some of their outcomes downrange. I'd take it even a step further. Um, as I've said before, you know, I ended up in research, doing research almost accidentally. Uh, when I was a fellow, there were patients dropping dead of a disease I didn't understand. Um, I went to the literature, which involved going to a library, something people don't remember anymore, but, you know, we didn't search online. We searched the shelves um, and discovered that, you know, some really smart people didn't understand the thing any better than I did. Uh, that only left one choice. If I was going to adequately serve my patients, I had to do something to figure out what was going on with them. The argument I make with, with many of our residents about an academic career, about research as, as a part of an academic career, is it's intensely satisfying. You do solve problems. You do get to think about things in a way that you may never have the opportunity to do in clinical practice. There's a premium for out-of-the-box thinking that seems to be slipping away to some extent from clinical practice with good reason in some cases. So, again, the argument I would make is this is something that, that will keep you fresh, 
keep you excited, keep you interested, and keep you thinking and continually contributing to an improvement in your patient's care, to an improvement in individual patient's care, but also in the system in general and the overall care that we're capable of providing to the global community. Uh, that's something that, that, that doesn't happen um, in most isolated medical specialties. You do your job well, your patients appreciate it, your patients get better. Um, do you change the way things are done? Do you bring new insights? Do you root out mistakes? Do you make mistakes yourself and discover that they're errors? Um, these are things that are part of research that make me incredibly glad that, uh, that I ran into a disease I didn't understand. My, my career would have been nowhere near as much fun as it is uh, without that. I'd like to thank our guests today, Clifford Deutschman and Craig Coopersmith. Dr. Deutschman's from the University of Pennsylvania and Craig Coopersmith from Emory University. Both these gentlemen have written papers that appeared in the journal Critical Care Medicine that outline the current status of research on the topic of critical care medicine. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. You can find the latest episodes and archives at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare or find us and rate us on iTunes. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.